if you can have a standard that is going to make food systems more nutritious then you know that is just so exciting you know this you know relatively short um, document can have the impact to make um, 60% of the calories that the world's consumed up to 50% higher in the vitamins that we need the most. I think it's the most exciting thing you could possibly work on. You are listening to Farm to Fork, a series from The Standard Show, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards with Matthew Childs and Cindy Parkill. Today's episode is on food innovation. Where are we, Cindy Parakil? Well, Matthew Childs, we are at the To Love Tea and Coffee House in London's Battersea, just down the road from Clapham Junction. And we are waiting for our tea and cake. We are indeed. And it's a fabulous place, this, isn't it? Yes. There must be, I don't know, 50 different types of black tea on the wall behind the counter over there? At least. (laughs) Now, in terms of cake... After quite a bit of indecision, which I'm prone to here, I went for a slice of Guinness cake to go with my tea. What did you go for in the end? That sounds delicious. But now, being an Austrian, I do know a thing or two about cakes and pastries. So, after close examination of all the options, I went straight for the red velvet. But Matthew, um, I must say that recently I discovered this new cake. Well, new to me anyway, and that is the Bakewell tart. And I absolutely love it. It's got a nice crust, layers of jam, and I think the perfect amount of flaked almonds on top. Shame that they don't have it here. Do you like it? Oh, I absolutely adore Bakewell Tart. And did you know, Cindy, it's actually named after a place in Derbyshire, after the the village of Bakewell, and I used to live near there. Oh, really? Well, it's absolutely yum. Well, we are out having tea and cake because, as regular listeners will know, tea and cake has become a big part of the standard shows. Well, folklore, I guess, especially about the standards for brewing and tasting of tea. In fact, Cindy, I think those particular standards have probably been mentioned more than any other during the podcast. Oh, yes. Our listeners probably are experts in this. (laughs) Actually, um, we need to come clean here and fess up, don't we, Cindy? We do. That was the genuine sound of a slice of Clapham Battersea Cafe culture and the To Love Tea and Coffee House but we're not actually there. We had planned to be having tea and cake face-to-face, but unfortunately, well, reasons mean that it's not been possible. So where are you, Cindy? At home in West London. And I'm at home too, but in South East London. But though we are in two different places today, the plan is that for future episodes of this series, we will indeed be sharing tea and cake at the Two Love Tea and Coffee House. Absolutely. But actually, I do like the sound of that background. So now that we have fessed up, why don't we get producer Tom to bring it back and we can imagine we are there. Yes, Tom, can we get a rewind? (laughs) There we go. Sweet. Now, another reason we are having tea and cake, or pretending to now, is because we are celebrating two years of the podcast. And recording this almost two years to the day, Cindy, that we published the very first episode and started talking about the stories behind the standards. I know, right? More than 70 episodes, Matthew. Well, happy second birthday to us. Uh, Feels like we should be having something a bit stronger than tea, though. That's true. But the main reason we are going on about tea and cake is because this is the first episode in our series Farm to Fork, the relationship 
between standards and food. Now, in this series, our menu of episodes will loosely follow the food cycle of production, packaging, distribution, consumption and waste management and feature some of the key standards involved in each of them. We start the series by looking at food innovations, things that may end up transforming what we eat forever. Playing us in at the top of the episode was the voice of public health nutritionist Jenny Walton from an organisation called Harvest Plus, talking passionately about the standards PAS 233, 234 and 235, which are all about micronutrient-enriched crops. In this episode, we'll hear more from Jenny about these PASs and about those crops, which are being touted as one of the primary solutions to address the problem of what Jenny describes as hidden hunger around the world. Now, as well as the biofortification of crops, we'll be looking at another high-profile food innovation. It would be fair to say that it is not something that is coming to a supermarket or restaurant anytime soon, but it is something that could dramatically change the way in which we consume protein. And that food innovation is called cultivated meat. Kai Linton from the organization Maltus tells us all about it. After that, we'll hear from a couple of guests about innovations in farming and agri-tech generally. Lindsay Dunbar from the Scottish-based Industrial Bar Technology Innovation Centre tells us about some of the centre's work in using crop and plant-based sources, including sugar beet, to provide sustainable alternatives to fossil fuels. Yes, and we finish with James Leuvenberg de Boer, an academic and standards maker in the field of mobile autonomous crop equipment, or to put it more simply, farm robots. He tells us about the impact they're having on the food system and how they're part of the smart farming revolution. Now, throughout the series and this episode, we will, of course, be exploring the role of standards. Hi, my name is Sarah Walton. I'm the lead for the food sector at BSI Knowledge. As I'm sure you can imagine, feeding almost 10 billion people on the planet with a nutritious and sustainable diet would be a mammoth task at the best of times. But this is exactly the task we're going to be facing within the next 25 years. The current pressure on our land, oceans and animals means that finding a sustainable way to feed the world's growing population is going to be one of the most pressing challenges of our time. This means that harnessing technology and exploring alternative and innovative foods will become ever more central to creating more sustainable food production and eating habits. And there are already some incredible changes underway. Selective breeding techniques and propagation methods can help optimise foods by fortifying them with vitamins and minerals. And alternative proteins like microalgae, insects and lab-grown cultivated meat offer radical alternatives to traditional livestock. But these technologies and alternative food sources really need some conversation happening around them. Not only from the agri-food industry itself and government, regulators, research and academia and other important stakeholders, but also by us, consumers, um, those who are actually going to be eating these new foods. And this is where the standards come in and why food is one of BSI's key sectors for standards development. In the agri-food sector, Standards help businesses, entrepreneurs and innovators to grow their ideas along with their organisations. And they also help to achieve public policy objectives like supporting the agri-food sector to transition to net zero. Whilst at the same time, standards can help to reassure the public about the food they're eating and also to know that sustainable action is being taken in order to produce it 
This is particularly true for food innovation. Standards provide that clear way for everyone to agree what good looks like. A reminder that here on The Standard Show, we really welcome your feedback. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Find and follow us on Twitter at Standard Show and on Instagram at The Standard Show. And check out the show notes for all of the ways to get in touch. Now, in this episode, it's not cakes where we start, but crops. I had a chat with Jenny Walton, Head of Commercialization and Scaling at Harvest Plus. Jenny's been working in the field of nutritional content of food for more than 25 years. Harvest Plus is an organization that is developing and promoting biofortified food crops that are rich in vitamins and minerals. It's playing a leading role in a global movement to enable and encourage others to scale up biofortification. They anticipate that by 2030, 1 billion people will be benefiting from nutritionally enriched foods. I spoke to Jenny about this term biofortification and the three passes being developed in this area. Usually sponsored by industry, government, trade associations or professional bodies, a publicly available specification or PAS is a fast track standard. They're a powerful way to establish the integrity of an innovation. But I started by asking Jenny to tell me more about the work of Harvest Plus. So Harvest Plus has um, a really amazing role in um, a problem that's affecting the the world. And what most people don't realise is that a quarter of the population are suffering from malnutrition or hidden hunger, which is micronutrient um, deficiency. And what the idea was um, nearly 20 years ago is that given that the majority of the world's calories come from eight basic staple foods, so the wheat, the rice, the maize and the beans, that if everybody's eating those foods, if we just made those foods much more healthier and they contained higher amounts of of micronutrients, then we could go a long way to uh, eradicating hidden hunger in the population. So we coined the phrase biofortification, which is about how to make those plants do the work themselves and naturally fortify themselves with with nutrients so that when everybody in the population consumes their usual diet, they're getting a much higher amount of vitamins A, zinc and iron in the foods that they eat on on a regular basis. And Jenny, what about your role for Harvest Plus? What do you do? So I'm a nutritionist um, by background and a public health nutritionist, and I've always worked in, in the food industry. So I've, I've worked in um, um, big global food businesses and, and retailers and, and manufacturers. And my role has always been about how you take the benefits of food and nutrition to consumers and promote foods on the benefits of, of those properties. So whether it's um, pointing out the benefits of, of, of breakfast cereals or pre or probiotics, it's how nutritionists translate that technical information to consumers. So my role at Harvest Plus is, is around taking the, the benefits of the uh, nutrient-enriched crops, of the biofortified crops, and how we promote them to, to businesses who will use them and, importantly, to consumers who will eat them. Now, you mentioned this term biofortification. I'm interested in this. So um, is it the same you know, as crop enrichment? What are we talking about here? Are those, ter- are those terms interchangeable? 
Yeah, so biofortification is more the process. So um, at Harvest Plus, in Harvest Plus terms, biofortification is the process of using conventional plant breeding. So the the kind of stuff that Mendel did hundreds of years ago. So just cross breeding plants to get the best traits from them or in some cases um, agronomic um, fortification so that's using um, fertilizers um, while plants are growing to actually uh, end up with a crop that's much higher in micronutrient content so biofortification is the process and then you end up with um, uh, nutrient enriched crops or nutrient enriched uh, crops so this sort of turn then biofortification how long has that been with us so the actual term biofortification came about with the Harvest Plus project, but the notion of improving a plant's nutritional properties has been around for, for hundreds of years. So wanting to get the best out of, of agriculture and, and breeding um, crops and foods that actually contain more nutrition is is is, is centuries old. But it, it came to be an actual term to uh, combat um, international micronutrient malnutrition around 20 years ago, um, where it was realised that you could actually use this very sort of almost basic technology really to um, improve the the diets of, of, of everybody. So to be used as like a, a public health intervention, biofortification has only been around for around 20 years. What was the objective behind the original research programme pioneered by Harvest Plus? The original objective of Harvest Plus was to reach the world's most vulnerable um, consumers. So farming families, very low income farming families who rely on the food that they've grown at home and they don't have access to um, markets and supermarkets. They grow the food at home and um, sell surplus off to market. So those um, groups of people are really um, hard to reach because they're not buying food and you can't get to them with supplements. So the intention was to offer those farming families much more nutrient enriched versions of the crops of, and the foods that they were growing at home. So if they were a maize farmer and they were growing maize, then we would take the, the biofortified vitamin A maize version to them so they would grow healthier um, crops at home. And that's what we started out doing um, over 20 years ago with the with the aim to reach the most vulnerable and hard to reach communities. Um, and since then, we've, we've grown to um, bigger farmers and um, rural and urban um, populations. And now how the, the benefits of nutrient rich crops have um, opportunities for um, everybody in the food system. I mean, you mentioned there some of the benefits and I wonder, you know, sustainability and the UN sustainability, sustainability development goals are very important here. I just wonder how can this sort of sort of farming and sort of biofortification of crops, how, how can they help contribute to sustainability over the long term? Um, well, when talking about the actual SDGs, um, biofortification, nutrient enriched crops fits directly into uh, number two, which is zero hunger and number three, which is good health and well-being but also indirectly impacts the rest of um, the SDGs and particularly uh, number 13 on climate action. So as the, the world's um, temperature is, is getting warmer, it means that the growing cycle of um, crops is actually is, is getting shorter, which I think is a good thing. So you know, it takes less time for crops to grow. 
But if they have less time to grow, they have less time to assimilate um, the micronutrients in, in, the, in the finished grain. So biofortification goes a long way to actually counteract that um, issue of, of climate change. And also the, the, the varieties that are developed um, through the, um, the, the CGIR program and, and the expert breeders at, in, the, in the CG, we also take into consideration aspects such as um, drought tolerance, um, uh, pest resistance. So everything that's developed has to be um, climate smart and com um, competitive with the other um, seed products that are on the market. So I can see here how there is obviously this is a, a food innovation in, in in a sense. Well, it, in reality, and you're you're making changes here. But with, often with innovations or, or changes in technology or the way technology is applied, there can be some sort of in, unintended consequences for, from making those changes. So I wonder, with here, you know, are there any interesting or unintended consequences from implementing enrichment programs, maybe in different areas or with different crops, maybe? Yeah, absolutely, and. What uh, the sort of founders of the Harvest Plus program didn't realize was um, how uh, biofortification and nutrient-enriched crops is in an um, area of massive growth in the food industry. So consumers want foods that are naturally nutritious. They want foods that don't have a complicated um, uh, label, so they don't want added ingredients. Um, the whole rise of, of, of plant-based foods that are high in nutrients as, as their meat alternatives, um, ethical purchasing and um, buying products that actually does something good for the world is in massive growth. And it's, it's getting bigger. The sort of impact of, of COVID on there has really changed uh, consumers' behavior, not to mention the interest in um, the vitamins A, uh, zinc and iron, as they have um, a huge role in, in immunity and, and protecting yourself against um, um, viruses. So given that that's a, a huge trend um, and it's going to really help the actual demand for nutrient rich crops and demand for biofortification and demand for the work of the Harvest Plus program because it has a huge commercial benefit. So we're able to um, to have d developed something that we thought was going to be, um, you know, government funded and uh, something that was um, going to require sort of sponsorship that we'd take to the world's most vulnerable people. But really, everybody needs this technology and food businesses can um, actually start and grow because of this innovation. So Jenny, tell me about tell me about your standards journey. You know, how and when did it start for you, and where are you now? Standards are have been part of my career, and you know, having worked in the food industry, there's a standard for everything. So whether it's in food safety, or whether it's for food product labelling, or whether it's advertising and making nutrition and health claims. So I always knew that you know standards were absolutely critical when it comes to commercialising food. But when it started working on biofortification, we realized it was um, really difficult to differentiate the nutrient and rich grains from the grains that people were consuming um, already. And this um, difficulty in distinguishing um, nutrient and rich crops from the standard was throughout the value chain. So whether you're buying seeds, you're buying, buying grains or buying um, foods, it was really difficult for the, the buyer to actually decide if they were buying the right product. 
And um, we went through the entire value chain in all the countries that we operate in and found that the, the most critical gap in standards was, was at um, grain level. And if you were a trader, so if you're a farmer trying to sell your biofortified nutrient-rich grains or you were a food business looking to buy them, there was nothing there to say, you know, I need to buy it according to this standard or I need it to this level. So we looked for all different solutions. We talked to governments about the making legislation. We talked to Codex. We looked at the sort of length and breadth of, that we operate in different markets and if we could have a standard at each country level for each crop. Um, and uh, we netted at the, the PAS process as being the best for us because we could develop an international standard so a, a stake in the ground for nutrient enriched crops that would could be used in every single country and we decided to do it on a nutrient basis so that we cover all of the crops that we deal with by nutrient so we started with um, the PAS for for zinc because the zinc crops were actually reaching the most um, consumers so we wanted to to do a PAS that was had the most benefit to the most people quickly as possible um, and then we moved on to the uh, the iron crops and now finally we're doing the uh, vitamin a crops so the the pas 235 for vitamin a crops clarifications corn here pas 233 specifies the requirements for zinc enriched wheat maize and rice grain intended as food for human consumption PAS 234 specifies the requirements for iron-enriched bean and pearl millet, intended as food for human consumption. And PAS 235, well, that specifies requirements for pro-vitamin A-enriched maize grain, cassava root and sweet potato root, intended, you guessed it, as food for human consumption. And what impact are you hoping the, these international standards will have for those growing and supplying enriched crops? So for growers to have a product that conforms to a standard is really important. So they're able to talk with confidence and say, I have grown this grain that conforms to PAS 233. And that instantly shows value to, to traders to say that it's been grown to a, a specific um, condition or, or level or, or authority has said that, you know, this is the, this is the right product. So it instantly gives growers a, a benefit over the, the standard grains because the, the value is there and that you can advertise that value um, more freely to, to traders. And then from the other aspect, from the demand aspect, if you're a trader and you ask for a grain that conforms to this PAS, it makes it much easier for the grower to know what to grow. So it has um, instant benefits for, for growers who are able to advertise their products and traders who are, are able to demand something very specific that um, helps the farmer know what to grow. So in terms of the impact there on the on the sort of the growers and also uh, also the buyers, but is there a, you know, what sort of longer term impact you hope to see on the entire food chain? It's going to take um, some time to, to set in. So we're not uh, you know expecting results overnight, but although we, we are seeing um, people demanding and um, trading using the PS already, 
But the idea is that now that we have bridged this gap in, in grain trade and we have um, an, an authority standard on the subject, that it will make traceability much easier so that we now have end-to-end -end standards in place for nutrient-rich grains that we can now do end-to-end -end traceability to ensure that the seeds produce a food and the nutrient enrichment is then present in the in the processed foods where the consumers are buying it in markets and not just in the uh, the developing countries or the emerging markets but in um, countries like the UK or the US where consumers are building that demand and making the technology more mainstream um, so it will impact the, the wider global food system as well as local um, smallholder food production. You mentioned earlier, Jenny, the sort of recognition that that uh, you know throughout your career, standards has been have been you know part of your part of your professional life. I just wonder that now being involved in the in the development of one, you know, what's what's the experience been like? Um, it's funny, really. When I was much younger, I used to find like standards and regulations you know, really boring, and you'd you'd go along to like a meeting, and people start talking about standards and regulations, and it, you know, that my younger self would would be sort of, oh, don't understand it, and do we really have to? And it's a lot of text, and you know, what does it really mean? But the sort of the more mature side of me now sees how impactful standards are, and um. In food systems in particular, but if you can have a standard that is going to make food systems more nutritious, then, you know, that is just so exciting. You know, this, you know, relatively short um, document can have the impact to make 60% um, of the calories that the world's consumed up to 50% higher in the vitamins that we need the most. I think it's the most exciting thing you could possibly work on. So given, I'll give you a chance here give, to talk to young Jenny or young Jennies, some people similar to you, maybe at the start of their professional career, what would you say to your younger self about standards? I think if you realise the practicalities of them and how it actually impacts in, in real life situations, then you realise why they are interesting and why they are important, that standards and uh, are not just words on a page, they have an impact they have an impact on the way people um, do their jobs. They have a, an impact on the way people do business. They have a, a, a huge commercial impact that if, you know, buyers and traders, it won't happen if the standards aren't, aren't followed. So really understanding the impact of, of um, standards and the practicalities and how it impacts real, real life makes it a lot easier to absorb and sort of understand how, how it works. I just wonder if you were looking forward in sort of two or three years time, what impact do you hope to do you hope those standards to really have had? We hope that anybody who wants nutrient rich crops in their supply chains will specifically mention the PAS when they're demanding uh, the commodity or selling their commodity. And that's not just in um, commercial food production, so whether, you know, the big brands making, making food, but also in, in procurement for um, institutional settings. So whether it's the World Food Programme um, pr procuring um, grains um, for emergency response or whether it's schools, hospitals or prisons buying foods that they demand grain that conforms to those specific PAS numbers. Matthew, it was really interesting what Jenny was saying there about what might be seen as quite minor interventions in the food itself, but those 
interventions have the potential to have a huge impact on addressing that hidden hunger in the world. Now, details of those three passes, 233, 234, and 235, that Jenny has been involved with can be found in the show notes. We move now from cereals to meat, or rather, cultivated meat. We'll hear my conversation with Kai Linton, a bioengineer and founder and CEO of an organisation called Maltus. They're developing the key ingredient in this technology, what's called the growth media, with the aim of making cultivated meat affordable and profitable. I spoke to him about the history of the technology, the potential health benefits of cultivated meat, and some of the ethical issues too, and naturally, about the role of standards. But I started by asking him what is meant by this term, cultivated meat. Cultivated meat is, is really a new industry, a new way of producing the same meat we know and, and love today, just without using animals as a, as a factory, as a production vehicle. And so these companies now, there are about 85 across the world, uh, maybe more, there seems to be more every, every month. Um, but these companies are, are taking you know, a very small sample of cells from an animal and then putting them in, in, kind of, uh, in an environment to grow outside the animal. So you can imagine, like we brew beer, these companies are growing meat cells and meat tissues, muscle and fat and connective tissue uh, without using animals, but using these large kind of industrial metal tanks. And, and this is a much more efficient process than it is to use animals. You can make you know, production runs in 40 days instead of four years. And uh, really the kind of the benefits across land and energy and water and antibiotics are, are, are they're massive. Um, but one of the, the major things holding back this whole industry is the cost of, of feeding those cells with the right kinds of nutrients. Uh, and so this is really where, where we come in. We design and select new kinds of nutrients that are affordable and scalable for the food industry. And also uh, we, we have a process to figure out how to combine them in the right way to actually grow you know, a, a chicken cell or a, or a pig cell or a cow cell. Can you give us a brief history about this particular food innovation? You know, how, how and when did it start? Yeah, so really, the, the kind of in terms of the history of cultivated meat, back in 2013, 2014, it was a, a group from the Netherlands, uh, Professor Mark Post, that introduced cultivated meat, at least to the world, in, in a major way. So he, uh, with his kind of university, grew the first cultivated meat hamburger. Uh, he introduced it in London, and it cost about $300,000 to make just that one single burger. So crazy price point, but a demonstration nonetheless, that this could really be a, a viable solution in the future. And then ever since then, uh, kind of the first major companies were set up in 2015 and 2016. Um, and since then, there's been you know, growth every single year um, with companies like us focusing on specific enabling technologies, others that are looking more at the kind of branding and, and product side. And so it's a really rich ecosystem now from kind of foundational research in academia right through to you know, large corporations that are pivoting and acquiring companies in this space as well. And where is, it, where is the sort of technology and the industry right now? So the, into the, the leading edge of this industry today is really at the, the pilot scale. So there's actually only one company in the world that has a product that they're selling on the market. Uh, it's a company called Eat Just over in Singapore. Um, but there are you know, many more companies that are producing 
still relatively small quantities of cultivated meat, but going through that regulatory process. And really, we expect in the next uh, kind of three to, to four years that there'll be you know, maybe 10, 10 or more companies that have products on the market, initially at restaurant scale, but over this next decade, really uh, scaling their production and, and bringing their products to, to supermarket levels. And are there any particular risks associated with this food innovation? Not, not particularly. I mean, so there's a, you know, we're working with new biotechnologies. Um, part of the way that this whole industry is going about its its process to to minimize risk is to be very transparent, is to to hold the highest production standards and safety standards possible. Um, and you're really, you know, growing growing real cells. So actually, you can create a much cleaner product, one that doesn't have uh, you know, antibiotics inside doesn't have microplastics or heavy metals like you might find in fish, um, and so there's an opportunity here to truly create the same or even better meat products than we have today, but in a much more affordable, much more sustainable way than industrial farming. I want to come back and ask you about about standards. Now you mentioned there um, about about how the the cultivated meat is grown and the sort of the health issues. I mean, are there additional health benefits here for this for this particular type of meat? Absolutely. So so there's an opportunity to create a healthy cultivated meat burger, if you like, um, because there's this ability to really customize what goes into that final product you can decide the ratio of you know muscle and fat tissues you can decide where those fat tissues come from in the first place you might want to combine you know healthy salmon fats with a uh, a lean you know chicken muscle uh, and that's totally possible now with, with cultivated meat you can also then you know supplement these these products with additional vitamins if if you want as well to make a, a super healthy cultivated meat product um, that is designed to, to be very nutritious. Now we've seen some obviously huge changes over the last 20-30 years or so in terms of people becoming vegetarians and, and the growth in veganism as well so I just wonder you know are there any uh, sort of any ethical issues here for, for this particular type of food? I would say there aren't really major ethical issues with this food at all. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a new kind of food uh, that we're, we're bringing to market but really it's, it's you know Taking cells in a, a very standard way, uh, you know, taking cell biopsies from animals is very routine uh, today in, in the livestock industry. And then it's growing those cells with ingredients and, and nutrients that are uh, designed uh, and suitable for, for food production. And there's you know safety standards uh, and certification and regulation at every step of, of the way. Um, of course, you know, as as you mentioned, there's more and more vegans and vegetarians. Um, particularly in, in the UK and, and Western countries, but actually the trend is towards more and more meat consumption. Um, as large countries have a, a growing middle class and, and growing demand and consumption of, of meat products, they don't want to be told, uh, you know, suddenly we're, we're forcing the world not to, to eat meat. And, and generally people, when they think about meat, taste and cost are number one, and then maybe health and, and sustainability are much lower down on that list. So it's about creating options, creating sustainable options so people can be vegan and vegetarian if they want to. People can have access to good quality, uh, tasty, affordable, sustainable, cultivated meat if they want to. And, and maybe there's still an option also for the conventional 
livestock reared meat too on the market. So I don't think it's a matter of one or the other. Um, it's a matter of creating sustainable abundance in meat. Now, in terms of obviously any innovation, you know, is all about sort of market disruption. And I just wonder, you've mentioned there about sort of traditional meat. I mean, what are the implications here for the traditional meat industry of this new innovation? So, of course, we're, we're creating a competing product in, in many ways, but that doesn't mean that the farming industry necessarily loses out. Um, we're creating opportunities and solutions that incorporate uh, the, the farming industry. Uh, we're actually part of a project now funded by the UK government to look at how we can uh, build solutions that uh, farmers can, can work with today or maybe adapt and evolve their, their practices to, to support uh, these kind of new alternative proteins into the future. Uh, and farmers have a, a large part to play in, well, in, in many areas of, of the supply chain. So the first relating to, to growth media, really what we're working on, they can be growing crops that uh, that create the micronutrients required to grow different cells, uh, much like they do for the livestock industry. But those those crops and nutrients will go much further because they're being used in a more efficient way. Um, they're also companies that are working with farmers to uh, to rear you know, certain species of, of animals and cows and pigs um, and use them as, as sources of, of cells intermittently. So those those you know, animals can live a, a healthy, happy life. And then every so often, you know, a very small amount of cells are taken to then take and, and, and grow the, the next uh, the next batch of, of cultivated meat. So there's there's a way of, of living in harmony with um, with cultivated meat and, and the farming industry. There's also groups, um, you know, particularly in the Netherlands and funding actually very recently in the Netherlands to to look at how farmers could even have their own local production of cultivated meat. And we then move to a model similar to what we have today where there are farmers producing the, the meat locally um, and for the local kind of area. And then that value chain continues and somebody takes that, that mass of meat and processes it um, into your different burgers and sausages, etc., and then somebody takes it to retail uh, and and puts it in front of customers. So there, there are definitely ways that farmers can be involved, and really, we're also creating more jobs within cultivated meat. So expanding uh, the ability for people to work in food um, and to to be close to how uh, their food is produced. So standards, then, what's the what's the role for standards in this particular form of, of food innovation? Standards have a, a major role in, in cultivated meat and, and alternative proteins more generally. Obviously, there are those relating to uh, safety um, and production processes. So food safe production processes, you know, ISOs 9001 and 22000 are pretty common in the food industry already. And we can really model our production sites according to, to those standards. But then also when considering you know, specific safety tests that you might want to uh, want to conduct, you know, looking at uh, the the profile of, of the end product, whether it's impurities or nutritional profiles, uh, there are standards involved there as well. And then um, talking about innovation, um, creating standards or frameworks that, that people can innovate within can actually help this industry be more compatible with each other. There are lots of companies now um, almost reinventing the wheel, uh, as it were, by working on similar technologies and challenges, but uh, an element of standardization can actually help 
these companies create solutions that work together and, and accelerate the industry forward. So we're in, in discussion with, with BSI, we're bringing together different stakeholders across the cultivated meat industry, you know, companies, governments, um, consumers, other stakeholders, standards organizations, um, to think about you know, how, how can we create working groups around new standards and, and put together um, opinion pieces and, and work towards creating new standards that the industry can, can work with. Um, we're also involved with the Alternative Protein Association. So this is a, a UK association that's really working with stakeholders and, and the UK government to to create uh, a better system for supporting funding, uh, regulatory uh, processes and, and talent creation within the UK to support the next uh, generation of, of alternative proteins in the UK. You mentioned you mentioned earlier, Kai, about about sort of safety issues. I just wonder, from uh, you know, you are a manufacturer working in this, this this innovative space. You know, from your perspective, what's the importance? You know, in terms of the relationship between standards and regulation, how do you view that from a manufacturer's perspective? Standards and, and regulations are, are very closely linked. Um, so when we're thinking about manufacturing. There are, there are two sides to this. So there's the manufacturing process itself, and there are oftentimes many standards involved with having safe uh, you know, food manufacturing processes and reporting lines and standard operating procedures um, that we can comply with and be certified for um, for our production processes. And then there's the, the regulation safety element to the ingredients and inputs themselves. And, and this is often where uh, kind of regulation comes in, so there might be you know a specific ingredient that we have approved by the the food safety authority to to be consumed by by humans, um, and then so if we can use that safe ingredient that's approved by the regulatory bodies in a production process that's approved by the the standard organisations, then we can create products that we can then uh, market and, and produce at scale in a safe way for uh, for for people for the end consumers. For thought. Proteins are the building blocks of our bodies, necessary for both growth and maintenance. And meat is one of the primary sources of those proteins. But our eating habits are changing. Meat consumption in the UK, for example, has fallen by 17% in the past decade. As an alternative, broccoli is relatively high in protein, making up 29% of its dry weight. In fact, it contains more protein per calorie than steak. But don't get too excited. Because of its high water content, 100 grams of broccoli only provides 3 grams of protein. So you'd need to eat a lot more broccoli to get the same number of calories than you do from the meat. Cindy, I was particularly interested in there and what Kai said about some of the potential benefits of cultivated meat as a source of protein in terms of efficiencies. Now, you're an economist. He talked about producing the same amount of food in four months as it might take in four years with traditional livestock methods. Yes, that's true. But I suppose, as he says, we are some way off yet this being a normal or me buying it in a supermarket or eating it in a restaurant. But I suppose if it does take off, this will change the meat industry dramatically. And it'll be interesting to observe the standards development process for it, too. 
There's also a strong element of science fiction about it, isn't there? That, that's it. That's what I felt mm. too. I mean, it feels incredibly futuristic. But I also wonder, what, what do you think about the end product? Can you, can you see yourself eating a laboratory-grown meat burger? Well, I guess so. I mean, I don't think I have any ethical objections. It'll be certainly interesting to do a taste test. It will indeed. Now, actually listening to Kai describing how the cells will be safely taken from animals, mm. it reminded me of something I read in a Diary of the Wimpy Kid series of children's books. Do you know these? No, I don't. Now, this is an incredibly successful book series about a boy called Greg Heffley, about his life and his family and the scrapes he gets into. Mm -hmm. Now, he has a couple of brothers, a younger one called Manny, who gets away with everything, and an older one called Roderick, who's a bit daft. Now, in one of the books called The Long Haul, the family go on a road trip. And on that trip, they stop off at a country fair and Manny ends up winning a pig in a guess the weight competition. Now, of course, the family think there's no way they can keep the pig. But Roderick says at one point they need to keep the pig so they can have bacon every day. Now, obviously, that was daft because you'd have to kill the pig. But listening to Kai, by taking those cells in a safe way and then growing the meat in a lab, then I suppose this could really happen. Now, while you muse on that, Matthew, we need to take a look at some innovations in farming and agri-tech in general. We're going to hear from Lindsay Dunbar from the Industrial Biotechnology Innovation Centre. Launched in 2014 with public funding from the Scottish government, the centre is a network and support organisation that connects industry, academia and government to bring biotechnology processes and products to market. With labs at Strathclyde and Harriet Watt Universities, it has a membership of 140 organisations across Scotland, the UK and Europe. Biotechnology uses plant-based and waste resources to produce or process materials, chemicals and energy, offering, for example, sustainable alternatives to fossil fuels, important for helping to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I'm back from our musings now, Cindy. I started by asking Lindsay about agriculture's own contributions to those emissions. It's one sector that's quite a significant contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. And the IPCC special report on climate change and land estimates that agriculture is directly responsible for about 8.5% of all greenhouse gases and a further 14.5% coming from land use. And that's on a global scale. And from a UK perspective, agriculture is directly responsible for around 10% of a greenhouse gas produced in, Scotland, in the UK. So I think it will become increasingly important to find solutions to decarbonise agriculture and achieve net zero ambitions. And we've got quite a lot of companies in our network that are working on novel solutions in this space already. So a few examples are we've got vertical farming is one solution that's being explored and they're looking at um, growing certain crops and it's a really interesting solution using vertical farming for urban areas where they have quite limited land use availability and um, other companies as well. They're exploring the development of feed for livestock, which can help reduce the amount of methane they produce. Um, cows can be a bit gassy. <laughs> so, um, when, for example, looking at seaweed-derived feeds, and they can help reduce the, the methane produced by, cat, by cattle as well. 
Um, and then there are companies that are moving away from traditional agriculture to develop novel ways to manufacture foods. Um, so, for example, they could be taking something that's considered a byproduct or a waste. So, say, whiskey coal products is one example to make an alternative protein with that. So uh, making something that's quite similar to corn. So one really good example of a project that we're working on in the agritech space is sugar beet. So Scotland is currently exploring the possibility of reintroducing sugar beet as a rotational crop to be utilised as um, a source of biofuel or as a feedstock for sustainable manufacturing. And the rationale behind this is Grangemouth, which is Scotland's main chemical manufacturing site, is being targeted as a main source of emissions as it's responsible for about 10% of Scotland's CO2 emissions per annum. So the introduction of sugar beet as a feedstock in Scotland would create a brand new supply chain and it could also future-proof manufacturing at Grangemouth by offering an alternative to fossil fuels for some processes and also ensuring the fossil fuels that we do have that are finite can last longer to use in other processes as well. And it could be the foundation of a carbon negative bio-based chemicals industry in Scotland. And it's very much envisioned. We see this as a two stage process. So in the first stage, um, it will focus on reshoring Scotland's ethanol supply chain. So currently bioethanol is imported from Europe for blending into petrol in Scotland. And last September, the government mandated E10 in petrol, which means that 10% of bioethanol must be blended into petrol. Previously, it was only 5%, so this effectively doubled the UK demand for bioethanol overnight. So the UK produces approximately 900 million litres, and now that E10 has been introduced, the need is around about 1.7 billion litres. So that leaves a shortfall of around 800 million litres. At the moment, we have three bioethanol facilities in the UK. We've got Vivergo and Ensis, which are both wheat-based, and then British Sugar also has a smaller sugar beet-based um, bioethanol facility as well. And then in next stage, in stage two, we very much see when electric vehicles becoming, are becoming more prominent, that there will already be an established supply chain in place. So this could be converted to manufacture more bio-based chemicals and offer a nice homogeneous feedstock for manufacturing instead of relying on fossil fuels. Of course, there are alternative bioresources already available, primarily through wastes. And it was identified by Zero Waste Scotland that there's 27 million tonnes of biomass that's available in Scotland but it's spread across the country and it'd be quite difficult to establish any manufacturing at scale that's reliant on waste generated from other industries so that's again another reason why we're quite interested in looking at sugar beet and to date Scottish Enterprise they've commissioned an initial study into the viability of sugar beet in Scotland which was undertaken by the NNFCC who are bio-based consultants based in York and it showed quite initial promising results so after that they decided to do some follow-on work on um, sugar beet and some growth trials were undertaken at the James Hutton Institute along with um, four different farm sites as well for growth trials and they're all based in the east coast of Scotland and the reason for that is it's the only re region in Scotland that's capable of growing sugar beet due to its climate and also the availability of arable land. I think it's going to become um, increasingly important as we move towards the net zero target set by the government. So in Scotland, that net zero target is by 2045 and then in the UK, um, it's 2050. So I think that policymakers and companies alike are going to be looking for more solutions where they can uh, reduce their, their uh, greenhouse gas emissions and um, they can green their manufacturing processes and I think as well um, post-pandemic there's also an interest in how we can 
reshore some of our supply chains and also create more local supply chains so we're not relying on um, getting our feedstocks from a, a global um, supplier because that, that has been a challenge a lot of companies have, have faced um, during, during the pandemic. Food for thought. Lindsay mentioned vertical farming. Now, this is the practice of growing crops in vertically stacked layers. It often incorporates soilless farming techniques such as hydroponics, aquaponics and aeroponics. Lettuce, rocket and other salad types are some of the most common crops grown in vertical farms. The world's largest vertical farm, with nearly 14,000 square metres of growing space, the equivalent of 96 tennis courts stacked on top of each other, is set to open in the UK later this year. It was really fascinating to hear from Lindsay about what could become a brand new industry in Scotland around growing sugar beet to produce greener fuels. I think that's really a good example of public-private academic partnership around innovation. That's right. Now, sticking with farming, we thought we should have a look at some of the technology being used in farming itself. I spoke to James Lernberg de Boer, Professor in Agritech Applied Economics at Harbour Adams University and also a standards maker in the area of agricultural machinery and technology. I talked to him about the impact this technology has had on the food system, and also what is meant by this term smart farming. But I started by asking him about Harbour Adams. I put it to him that this is a UK university that many people may not be that familiar with. I like to say that uh, Harper Adams is a, a relatively small university but a big agricultural university. So I worked for many years at uh, a couple of large agricultural universities in the United States. Uh, and um, Harper is, has as many students uh, as many of those uh, very, very large uh, agricultural universities. But Harper is different in the sense that it's all related to agriculture, broadly speaking. Uh, that um, agriculture includes uh, logistics of the food system. It includes off-road non-farm vehicles as, re- as well as farm machinery. So uh, it's, it's a very broad uh, uh, interpretation of what agriculture is, but all related to agriculture. Now, James, you're a professor in Agritech Applied Economics at Harper. Can you tell us about your, your research interests? Yeah, so uh, my career uh, has been focused on uh, the economics of agricultural uh, technology. So uh, I uh, help identify what uh, problems uh, farmers have that could be potentially resolved by technology. I work with engineers and uh, soil scientists and other uh, scientists to develop the technology in a cost-effective way. Uh, I uh, work with entrepreneurs to help them commercialize that technology and put it into uh, a marketing and supply system that works for the agricultural industry. And then I spend a lot of time uh, measuring how much of that technology uh, that's uh, marketed and commercialized is actually used because that's the best measure of whether or not uh, farmers and agribusinesses find it useful if, if they uh, 
buy that technology, invest in it, and use it. Now, I want to come back to the issue of agricultural technology. But before we get there, now you have become a standards maker. Now, here on the podcast, we love our standards journeys of our guests. So how and when did your standards journey start and where are you now? So I'm uh, part of a, uh, a committee that is developing standards. Uh, UK standards for uh, mobile autonomous uh, crop equipment. And uh, the way that I um, became involved was that I'm the economist for uh, Hands Free Farm, which is a Harper Adams uh, effort to uh, do research and to demonstrate that autonomous um, farm equipment is both uh, technically feasible and economically uh, viable in some meetings with stakeholders. So with farmers, with entrepreneurs, with um, insurance companies, uh, it became clear that uh, the UK needed some kind of uh, standards to help people understand how to use that technology. So there are a number of ISO and other standards that uh, guide uh, the engineering of the technology. But in terms of actually using it, that uh, is uh, a much more open field. And there are some standards in Australia, but of course, the uh, context of rural Australia uh, is very different from uh, the quite densely populated uh, countryside in the UK. And so, um, through uh, those stakeholders, uh, I got into contact with um, the British Standards Institute and became involved with uh, this, uh, this group um, developing the standards for the UK. And in terms of agricultural technology broadly then, you know, what impact does that have on the food system? Agricultural technology, in, in short, is what provides us with f- food security that uh, it, it helps us grow more, better quality food on less land with less labor, and if correctly used with less of uh, a pressure on, um, on, on the environment. And um, I have a, a, quite a number of examples throughout my career of where technology has helped. But uh, just one example, before I came to Harper, I worked um, with the Gates Foundation on uh, introducing grain storage uh, technology in Africa. And in uh, the uh, Republic of Niger, uh, the production of uh, cowpeas, which is a high protein, very nutritious food, increased by a factor of 10 after we resolved the storage problem for, uh, far- for farmers and merchants. So technology can have a real impact on food security. And in terms of sort of the latest developments then, thinking maybe about sort of mobile phone, farm machinery or, or crop robots, if that's a term that we use, you know, are they the future of farming? All over the world, uh, farmers are struggling to find workers and that motivates uh, a lot of work on uh, autonomous crop machines. Uh, robots, um, are what they're commonly called uh, in in the media, mostly uh, among uh, those people who work on them, they they tend more often to be called autonomous uh, crop machines. Um, But uh, those uh, 
that struggle to find labor appears in all kinds of countries of all income levels. Um, and it's exacerbated because some of the technologies that we've used to reduce labor, say, for instance, like herbicide, are either uh, declining in effectiveness because of uh, weed resistance, or uh, those chemicals are now not being recertified uh, because of environmental issues. And so um, the, the move is toward uh, autonomous uh, equipment. And we can see this now starting to appear in uh, commercial uh, agricultural machinery. So all of the major farm equipment manufacturers have autonomous machine development programs. A few of those companies have uh, announced that they're actually selling uh, those, those products. We know of over 40 startup companies around the world that are um, developing and starting to market uh, crop robots or autonomous machines, mostly smaller ones than the major farm equipment uh, companies are working on. And we know of at least six companies worldwide that are selling retrofit kits that would allow uh, someone to convert conventional farm equipment, tractors or self-propelled equipment uh, into uh, autonomous use. So yes, it is the future uh, and it will have at least as much impact on the way agriculture is done and how it's structured uh, as uh, motorized mechanization did in the early 20th century. And is there a particular sort of country here or group of countries that's leading the field in, in the use of this technology? Um, as always, uh, this is not uh, concentrated in, in just one country, uh, but... Uh, you find uh, certain uh, areas of expertise. So uh, in terms of, of specialized weeding robots, uh, a lot of the work is happening uh, in various EU countries, in Denmark, in Switzerland, in Germany. Uh, and in part, that is because uh, farmers there um, are really struggling with, with weed control because of uh, very strict um, uh, regimes in terms of, of um, managing uh, uh, pesticides. Uh, larger farm equipment, uh, autonomous farm equipment, a lot of it seems to be developed in North America, and that makes sense. It's, it's a, a place of big farms with big fields, uh, and uh, so it's there. Um, UK has really uh, taken a lead in practical applications of autonomous uh, equipment in areas uh, with uh, small, irregularly shaped fields, which characterizes much of, of uh, British, British agriculture. Uh, and uh, Hansfree Farm uh, at Harper has been part of that movement, but there's a number of, of uh, startup companies that are really focusing on the potential of that market. Now, people may have heard this term smart farming. Can you, t can you tell us what that is? And also the work that ISO is doing to develop this area. So smart farming has many definitions, but they all seem to uh, center on using information technology to make agriculture better. So make it more profitable, make it less risky, reduce the environmental load from agriculture. 
Uh, and ISO is now uh, looking at what kind of standards beyond what they already have uh, are needed to uh, help uh, facilitate the growth uh, of this kind of, of technology. And so uh, one of the examples, and it happens to be, I happen to be on the, the ISO um, strategic advisory group for smart farming. And um, one of the issues that has come up is what kind of information in what format and what media should be provided to non-farmers in rural areas. So uh, if you're somebody who goes out walking their dog in the countryside, uh, what do you want to know about robotic crop equipment that's working in the field through which you walk? Um, and in Britain, uh, unlike Australia or most of North America, um, farm fields often have public walkways, pathways through them. And so there is this potential interaction. And it's important that we have some standards there because if uh, farm equipment, autonomous farm equipment is um, exported throughout the world, then uh, it should be done in a standardized way so that uh, it can be uh, generally useful, not just useful in one uh, specific place. So I became involved because I was already involved in uh, the uh, autonomous uh, crop machine code of practice here uh, in the in the UK, and so uh, I was asked to represent uh, the UK on uh, on this committee. In particular, I have been involved in the subgroup for uh, the social aspects of uh, of these standards. Uh, and part of the mandate of uh, ISO in uh, this particular effort is to uh, further the, uh, the uh, achievement of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so that means having standards that apply not just in industrialized developed countries, but also in less developed countries to help this is another revolution in agriculture that's coming that's going to have massive effects. Uh, those effects could be quite positive in terms of uh, reducing environmental uh, loading from agriculture, in terms of uh, making small and medium-sized farms more technically efficient, in terms of producing higher quality food uh, with uh, you know, uh, less, um, fewer pesticides and so on and so forth. So uh, they should be aware of that. And uh, what we hope is uh, that there's uh, an understanding uh, of that or willingness to consider that when, when it comes to uh, autonomous equipment working in fields and so on. Well, Cindy, we have gone from nutritionally enriched crops to cultivated meat to growing crops for more sustainable fuels to robots on farms. Yes, we have. And we should say our thanks to Jenny Walton, Kai Linton, Lindsay Dunbar and James Löwenberg de Boer and also to Sarah Walton of BSI for taking part in this episode and giving us so much content to chew on. And for more information on food innovation and those passes, check out the links in the show notes. 
And we finish with James there on Farming Cindy because it links nicely to some of the things we are going to cover in the next episode. Yes, because part of that involves us being down on the farm. It does. It includes the wearing of wellies and the meeting of cows. Or as we like to think of it, it's where the standard show meets BBC Radio 4's Farming Today. You have been listening to Farm to Fork, a series from The Standard Show. Subscribe to us now, wherever you get your podcasts. You just heard a stripped media production.